This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. I do want to bring out Tim Sloan. He is the president and CEO of Wells Fargo. Great. So the elephant in the room. Sure. Interesting couple of years for Wells Fargo. Yep. And I think safe to say that many would say it was an epic mismanagement in terms of what happened at the firm. We made our share of mistakes. That's correct. Two million unauthorized accounts opened Mm -hmm. by employees. You guys paid $185 million in in fines, Mm -hmm. enforcement actions. Workers were incentivized to basically open up those accounts. Mm -hmm. What have you learned? Well, let me correct a couple of things. We we don't know how many accounts that were were opened were unauthorized. When you say one unauthorized account, one is too many. Correct. Right. One is too many, and that's absolutely correct. But regardless. There was no question that we had an incentive plan in a part of our business, not across the entire company, but in our retail banking business that incented our team members in in retail banking, most of whom did an incredible job during this period, but it incented them to be more focused on opening an account as opposed to providing good service and advice. How does that happen now? I think it happens over time where you have a plan that tends to work Right? From, uh, for a variety of, of reasons, uh, because when you looked at the, the customer service scores were improving during the same period, we were growing as a company, our earnings were growing, deposits were growing, primary, all the other metrics. But when you step back and look at it, we had an incentive plan that was just, just went off the rails. And it was more than just an incentive plan, and I think this is a really important learning experience for all of us. And that was it created a, a management environment where uh, many of our managers uh, at the time in our retail banking business were more focused on managing to a plan than being good managers. And, and that, cr- that really made the problem even a little bit more difficult. But look, we've acknowledged the mistakes we've made. We've taken responsibility. Right. We've made fundamental changes in the company. Uh, to the extent that any customers were impacted, we, will, we are making it right by them. And then we're moving forward. You took over as CEO, and I know that there were succession plans in place anyway, correct. that it was going to happen, but the timetable obviously maybe Got changed a little bit. That's correct. You didn't hesitate at all about no. taking the job at that time. No, I mean, it was, it was uh, I mean, I looked at, I, I care so deeply about Wells Fargo. I've worked at this company for most of my working career, and I care so much about its success. And to be in this role is, is an incredible honor from my perspective. Um, would you prefer to be in this role when you weren't dealing with some of the issues that we're dealing with today? Well, of course, right? But, but from my perspective, I looked at the situation and said it's now my responsibility along with our great leadership team to, f- to fix it and to rebuild trust with all of our stakeholders. You told John Stump, who was the CEO at that time, he retires, names you, mm-hmm. and I think you went on Well, CNBC. the board named Oh, the board named you, yeah. forgive me. Yeah. And you went on CNBC and you said it's a sad moment. It is. Were you sad for customers 
the company, employees? No, I was sad for employees because now I was their CEO and I felt sorry for them. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, it was, it, was sad. it was sad for a lot of reasons. I think it was sad for what, what had happened. It was, a, it was a recognition of what had happened. Yeah. I mean, we've had this great 166-year history of this company, and, and the last couple of years have been challenging, and that moment really reflected that. Did you, in, in terms of reflection, did you look back, though, as you re- assumed the CEO spot and say, oh, man, I did see that sign? Like, were there signs there that most... Carol, absolutely. I would bet if I, I asked, every, interviewed everyone in this room, you guys are all successful executives of firms or founders of firms, and I bet you can remember off the top of your head the five biggest mistakes you made, but I bet you can't remember your five greatest successes, right? And that's why you're successful. And so that's the way yeah. I think, right? It's, I don't think about the fact that, you know, we've, been, we've had all this success. I think about what could we have done differently. And there were lots of things that we could have and should have done. Right. And we're using those learnings in terms of how we're managing the company today. How tough is it to manage, though, as you're making the changes, you've got to shore up your employee base, right, and maybe adapt the culture, when other things still continue to come out? And I think about there were some overcharges for auto loan and mortgage customers, Uh, government inquiries about your wealth management business uh, related to 401Ks, um, a foreign exchange business inquiry. February of this year, you had the Fed Institute a cap. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of your assets. Mm -hmm. How hard is it, as you're trying to right the ship, Come out with a new message, say, we fixed it, and yet these still, things still continue to come out. It's part of writing the ship. I mean, one of the, it's all the, part of it. One of the, uh, the promises that I made to all of our stakeholders when I took this role in October of 2016 was that we were going to look at every policy, every procedure, every product in Wells Fargo uh, the way that we did business, and if there was anything that we found that we needed to improve upon, we were going to be very transparent about it. If any customers were impacted, we were going to deal with that, and we were going to change. Well, I want to ask you, Tim, because you yeah. know some critics have said, how can Tim Sloan do it? He's been there for such a long time. That how was my can- father. I mean, come on. <laughs> Actually, Senator Warren. Yeah. <laughs> but she said, how can you inject a new perspective when you are someone who is so embedded in the Wells Fargo culture. Mm-hmm. How can you? It, it's not that hard, actually. I mean, this, this view that somehow... But that, you could say, I've got to get rid of that executive. I've got to get rid of... If, if, if they're the problems, it's not. Yeah. And I know you have gotten rid of them. It's not, it's not easy, but it's your responsibility. Right? If I had stepped into this role and said, oh, my gosh, I don't believe any of these things that are going on or I'm not really going to make any change, then I would have been the absolute wrong person for this. But look what's happened since I stepped into this role. And by the way, when I, I don't like to use the word I in Wells Fargo. When you're managing a company, the CEO of a company of 265,000 team members in 34 countries, a $2 trillion balance sheet with 72 million customers, you don't do it by yourself. Right? It is a big, big team effort. So what have we done? We've, we've moved forward. We have a new board. Mm-hmm. We have a new chair. We have a, 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 the management team that reports to me has been changed. We've looked outside. When I look at the, the senior leadership in the company, 40% of the roles that were filled and the most senior leaders in the company were fi- in the last year were filled outside. So we're getting a good mix of people. We've held folks responsible if they've made mistakes. I mean, it's, it's unprecedented in corporate history how we've held people responsible. Um, we've fundamentally reorganized the company. We sent 
centralized all of our non-business uh, uh, enterprises, whether it's risk, finance, marketing, HR, you name it, we fundamentally changed how incentives are done. And I could go on and on and on. Right. That's just what, but at the same time, what's exciting is we've, we've, we've been investing tens of billion dollars in the company thinking very long term to, inc- to improve the quality of products and services and be incredibly innovative in the company. In terms of stakeholders, your largest is Warren Buffett. Right. In Wells Fargo. Mm-hmm. Um, did he talk to you through the process when you took the job? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I think that, that we have a, a, a very uh, uh, thoughtful outreach to all of our stakeholders, but in particular, all of our shareholders. We work for them, right? Mm-hmm. It's not my company. It's owned by the shareholders of, the, of Wells Fargo. And, uh, and so, you know, we've been, it's been a privilege to have Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett as our largest investor since the early 90s. I mean, the greatest investor of all time is the largest shareholder of Wells Fargo. And a long that's, term, a, yeah. that's a real honor. And, um, and so I reached out to him like I reached out to our, our other shareholders to ask for advice. And, um, you know, he's provided advice to me, which is great. Uh, so it's a, it's a terrific relationship. But uh, notwithstanding that it's Warren Buffett, you've got to treat him like every one of our shareholders. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a little bit better. <laughs> no, I'm just yeah. kidding. Um, so what does leadership mean to you then? I think first and foremost, you've got to have the belief and the commitment in, in what you're doing. Right? You, your team will appreciate it if you're not committed to whatever your business might be. I think, secondly, you've got to be incredibly optimistic about the future of your company. Right? The opt- I, was, I was thinking about uh, the uh, story I read recently, Winnie the Pooh to our granddaughter. And uh, there's a character in Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore. How many in this room would like Eeyore to be the CEO of their company? <laughs> right? A gray donkey with a, a, a pinned-on tail? Does that work for everybody? Right? You've got to be optimistic. You've got to believe in what you're doing. I mean, if you don't believe in what you're doing, who's going to do it You know, your company? How are you going to convince customers to do business with you? Second, you've got to be incredibly resilient. Right? We, we've had to be resilient because some of the challenges we've had. We all have to be resilient because the pace of change that's going on. I mean, it's not as if change just was invented a week ago. And I think about this and, and put it in the perspective at Wells Fargo. We started 166 years ago by delivering people and packages by horse. That was a great business model for a short period of time. And then we had to change. So that's not necessarily, the change is not new, it's the pace of the change. To be a successful leader, you've got to be resilient in terms of encouraging your team to embrace change, and that creates sometimes problems and sometimes opportunities. How important, too, is making sure that the culture change is happening and people on the outside understand that? Because I think about attracting talent. Yep. Are you having problems? No, not at all. In fact, when I stepped into this role, my biggest concern was about our team. We had an incredible team. I'm so proud of what they do. But the reputation of the company had changed overnight. Was that going to create an issue in terms of their wanting to stay at the company? Um, we've made uh, a number of changes in terms of how we interact with our team, how we listen better. That's mm-hmm. been a real learning and a good one. Uh, how we communicate, how folks are compensated. Um, not only in terms of their, their base pay, which we raised the, 
the, the pay of our lowest paid team members to $15 an hour. It literally impacted 85,000 people. Yeah. Okay? We changed our benefits and improved them. They're very attractive. Um, we also made a much better connection in terms of our team to the success of our shareholders. Um, uh, because when I would talk to our team, sometimes they'd kind of look at me funny when we were talking about, gosh, we want to really grow the, the value of our company. Well, they weren't shareholders, so how do you deal with that? You make them shareholders. We granted restricted stock rights of 50 shares, so it's $2,500 or so, mm-hmm. to everybody in the company right, that didn't, wasn't already getting equity as a form of their compensation. That's a lot of people. That's 250,000 people. You can do the math. Right, a very very important decision. We made, and I'll okay, go on and on and on. All changes. So, what has it meant? Our turnover in the midst of a very difficult period in our company right. is now down to its lowest level in five years. It can happen. In terms of attracting new people, ninety-seven percent of all the folks that we made an offer to last year joined Wells Fargo. So, we're fine. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. We continue with our broadcast from the Bloomberg Breakaway CEO Summit as Carol speaks to award-winning TV host and entrepreneur Martha Stewart. When you started out, go back to the 1970s in Westport and your catering company. Oh, yeah. Did did you have any idea that that you wanted to build a brand? No, I think uh, every entrepreneur in the room would know that you don't know what, what it's really going to turn out to be when you start it. Uh, unless it's a family-owned business that already has a, has a momentum. Right. So you don't know when you start uh, what it's going to actually be. And I had no idea that um, Martha would become the, the, you know, synonymous with a, with a brand. And, uh, and living a brand is, uh, uh, my brand is me and I'm the brand. So it's, a, it's kind of a, um, you know, it's just, now it's a simple thing. I just, I just assume that uh, everybody knows me by my name, and it's true. I walk down the street from the back, and the back of my head doesn't matter. Hey, Martha, you know. <laughs> so it's uh, what we what we really concentrate on is lifestyle and everything involved in lifestyle. And we uh, always say that media leads, and we started off, of course, writing books first, then the magazine, then television and radio, then product. So media leads and merchandising follows. Talk to me about when you went public in 1999. What was that like? I was looking at some, some video of when you did it. You're on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You're serving, I think, muffins and cupcakes and yeah. all this great stuff. Well, what the was trader, that like? All the floor traders loved that. They loved getting their, their muffins um, <laughs> that day. Uh, it was a very exciting day because um, I wish I had been a little bit more prepared. Um, I did not go to Harvard Business School. Um, I did. I knew a lot about business. I had really You'd worked uh, on Wall Street. I, I had worked on Wall Street. Yeah. I knew a lot about starting businesses and and being uh, entrepreneurial. But I really didn't. Um, I, I didn't pay as much attention as I probably should have. I was talked out of taking uh, or being able to divest myself of uh, a lot of money at that time. Uh, the first day of trading, our company was valued at over $2 billion, and I was worth over, way over a $1 billion that first day. Uh, that was very, a very um, euphoric feeling. I bet. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it was fun. I remember driving up Madison Avenue. This is, a story, this is a true story. Driving up Madison Avenue, saying to my driver, oh, gosh, you know, I could actually stop and buy anything. <laughs> and I didn't. I should have. Looking back... Would you have gone public again? Was it that um, would you, Yes, would I, you, I would have because yeah. uh, we ran a very, very excellent company. 
Uh, we had um, no debt. We had um, we had very good growth. But we were in a time. It was just that time when when retail had not yet entered its big struggles. Yeah. Um, I knew Jeff Bezos the day he started Amazon, and one of my investors was Kleiner Perkins. And so I got to know Jeff, and I got to know uh, the Google boys, and I got to know uh, Bill Gates. Visiting with all those uh, interesting young men who were just about to change the world. So I would have. Um, I absolutely done it again. Right. I was a little early in certain things. I was too early with my beautiful online catalog, uh, Martha by Mail. But we were just a little too early and didn't have the resources that an Amazon had to keep going and going. So leadership. What do you think is the right leader to be in this world today? Sort of apolitical. I think you have to be. It's very hard to take sides openly, especially in a media business. Yeah. Um, I can't do anything uh, uh, very overt, and I, I feel bad about that because I, I, get, I get requests every single day to be overt in my feelings, and, I, and you can't because 50% of your readership is on this side and 50% of your readership is on this side. So um, a lot of our, our um, entrepreneurial leaders like the Elon Musks and the, they, take, they take sides and they get into trouble. Right. And you, and you just can't. If you're running a big corporation, it's better to run your corporation, pay attention to the everyday workings of your, of your company, of your employees and, and, and focus on that. Do you ever get pressure though from employees? Because it's interesting, you know. They're... Oh, oftentimes. Yeah. Oftentimes. But you say no. No, no. But they know how I feel, but they don't. But I can't tell other people really how I feel personally, and I. And again, that's why you write a book. <laughs> <laughs> Later on. <laughs> so, what advice would Martha Stewart today give the Martha Stewart of when you were starting out? There's so there's so many so many pieces of advice. I think. One or two. I think. Um, um, choose your employees wisely. Mm. Get the very best like-minded people you can uh, and some that are even smarter than you are. Don't be afraid of that. No, don't ever be afraid of that. I think having smart people around you um, in my business has to be both smart and creative and, uh, and that those, are, those are the people that you will really, really want to have around you, uh, as, you as you grow, as you, as you thrive. And it's very important. Um, and uh, and pay, do lots of re you have to do a lot of research into people's backgrounds too. Uh, know know what they if there's somebody who comes in that's a little bit older. Know what they really did and, and can do. So it's uh, it's hard. It, uh, that's uh, that for me is the hardest part is choosing why choosing wisely enough uh, who's working with me. Well, she's a woman of the world, and God, she knows it. Woman of the world. Our next guest company, check this out, everybody. Worked with Sonos, Toyota, Lexus, Lux Hotels, GoPro, Disney, Google, and many, many more. She's helping these companies, these brands that have been around for a while, helping them to transform their existing organizations. Here to tell us more about it is Nikki Barua. She is CEO at Beyond Curious. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me, Carol. Yeah, great to have you here. Tell me a little bit more, though, about what you're doing. Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, digital has disrupted the way of business today, and it's completely redefined the nature of how um, businesses go to market, how they engage customers, how they collaborate internally. And the real challenge for large businesses, especially the billion-dollar-plus companies, the Fortune 500s, is how do you remain agile and adapt to change quickly? Adaptability is the number one survival skill for human beings. 
and it's the same for businesses as well. It, it's what struck me in talking to Martha Stewart last night, that here is someone who has been around for a long time, and she seems to continually recreate and embrace the new technology. She talks about kind of reading lots of things and so on and so forth and staying current. But these existing brands, like a Disney, great brand, great household name brand, but you're saying that they too have to figure out how to kind of embrace the new environment. The, the challenge uh, for large companies is not the lack of resources, because they're massive scale, but scale alone is not enough. You need speed as well. And in order to have, when you have both scale and speed, mm-hmm. you've got massive momentum, and that's what makes your market leader. The challenge for large companies is they're, they're a lot like elephants. The big and lumbering giants, um, and there's a lot of barriers in the way. You know, they don't have the ability to get insights and intelligence fast enough to know what the patterns are. I mean, Toys R Us went out of business not because people aren't buying toys, but because right. they were too slow. They struggled to have the digital platforms and capabilities they need. Right. They gave away essentially their online platform to Amazon early totally. on. And then finally, they have cultures that are not, uh, you know, diverse and have the innovation mindset. So at Beyond Curious, we've crafted a proprietary methodology that is all designed to help these very large companies become truly agile, innovative, and adapt to change. And that's why we say we're in the business of making elephants run. You also have a global platform that's working specifically with women and getting more women into technology. Yes, we're in the process of launching that because what we found is that um, as we were helping large companies think about how they shift their culture and think about how do they bring um, more women into technology jobs, that diversity gap um, is only widening over time because there's, you know, sk- there's been a lot of conversations about skills at this conference. Although Ursula Burns, former CEO of Xerox, said that there are more women coming out of universities with engineering degrees. 56% and, and yet, yet there's fewer that are actually getting into these Why roles. And, um, I, I think it's a, a sourcing problem at one end and there's also a... What does that mean, a sourcing problem? Um, I think it's harder for... Well, companies are struggling to find where to hire them from or even oh. where to find them. Uh, we, we see that all the time where recruiters bring talent to us and it's a pipeline of male candidates. And, and you think, how could that possibly be when there's so many uh, more women graduating today from colleges, and yet there's a struggle in that? And I think there's a visibility issue. There's fewer women in tech and in tech leadership. Right. Um, but there's also a choice of what they're uh, opting into. So I think there's a huge gap where there's a skills as well as a placement opportunity to provide them. Well, let me ask you about that. So, Nikki, so if we've got more than 50% of women coming out um, – of colleges with engineering degrees, where are they going? Why isn't it that they're not showing up more at companies? Are they leaving the workforce? What, what's going on? I, I think there's a couple of um, broad trends that are happening. One is also the choices that they're making in their careers post-graduation, you yeah. know, whether they're choosing maybe more to go into biotech, maybe not artificial intelligence working for a Google. Right. Um, the other part is getting into the workforce, but then needing to take a break. And so this re-entry program has become a major um, need for businesses to figure out a way to create the right opportunity for women to come back into well, the workforce. Well, that's a big part of it. I'm thinking about the companies and clients that you're working for. Are they creating an environment that is welwhelming and conducive to women engineers coming in? Is that part of the problem? It is uh, certainly a huge thing that they actively have to solve for because when you can't see it, you can't be it. 
And, and one of the big challenges in any company, in any large company, is you look at the leadership team. And for the most part, the you know, diversity makeup of that does not reflect what a, an entry-level woman engineer is looking at. So what's your advice to, I'm just thinking of women who are out there who maybe are studying an engineering degree? Because I know you're looking AI. I mean, everybody needs AI engineers. Um, just got about 35 seconds left here, 40 seconds. What's your advice? My advice would be jump all in. It's a huge opportunity for it, it, our time has come. It's not time to lean in. It's time to leap forward. Um, it's time to jump all in because the opportunities and the needs are there, not just for women, but for businesses to have that holistic perspective. And it's time for us to bring in that thought process and the impact in the companies. I see it as an opportunity too, right? Because, you know, we, we heard from this, the breakaway member CEOs are looking for talent. They're not finding it. But if there's more women who are in, you know, available, Available, they'll be hired, I would assume. Raise um, your hand and jump all in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, great to get some time with you. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Nikki Barua, she is CEO at Beyond Curious here, based in Beverly Hills, but here at the Bloomberg Breakaway CEO Summit in New York City. But that can't happen to us, Yes, indeed. When it comes to all the data that's put out there by companies, by individuals, we're all wondering wondering, and just concerned about how much we can trust the security of it. And our next guest knows an awful lot about that. Back with us, happy to have with us, Muhammad Ali, President and CEO of the data protection software company Carbonite. Um, nice to have you here. It's great to be here, Carol. I said before we got going that I feel like the two topics that everybody seems to want to talk about is the impact of technology on their business and concern about security of the information that they have, the digital security. Um, we're here at Breakaway. We're talking about a lot of things. Are we getting better at protecting all of our information? Well, Carol, unfortunately, the bad guys are getting <laughs> no. better and better what they do. And so, you know, the way Carbonite looks at the world is the bad guys are going to break into your house. And our job is to reconstitute your house, reconstitute all the data in your company instantaneously if needed after some sort of a breach. So we're the backstop. Are we getting, though, like I feel like you go back a few years and people are like, now nah, I'm fine. But are we all becoming more educated about it and understanding maybe how vulnerable we are potentially? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think all consumers, businesses, governments, everybody is becoming more aware of it. I mean, we're seeing things like, you know, the Facebook situation yeah. where, you know, it's changing the face of governments. It's changing the face of democracy and freedom. So I think people are becoming quite aware. And then in Europe, uh, you know, even more tougher so. Tougher standards. Tougher standards with GDPR. Uh, you know, regulating those types of privacy issues. I want to talk yeah. to you a little bit about the business environment because yeah. this is kind of an interesting, one thing I like about the Breakaway Summit is it's small cap, it's mid cap companies, public companies, um, who I really feel are the backbone of the U.S. economy. When you look at things and the conversations that you're having here, how are people? Are they upbeat? What do they see as the outlook? What do you see as the outlook? So, I mean, I'm, I'm upbeat from a business perspective. Uh, Especially being in technology, uh, because technology is, you know, infiltrating itself into every sector. Right. I'm also upbeat for our company because because technology is infiltrating itself, because data is becoming the heart of almost every company, um, protecting that data is critical. So for me, I'm upbeat. I do see the other members here at uh, CEO, the Breakaway CEO Summit uh, as, as upbeat. Uh, I, I don't know that it's upbeat for everybody in the country, though. I think there are large segments well, not, of the population know, right? yeah. who won't get to participate. Um, it's interesting, too. You're upbeat. Are you finding all the workers that you need, Mohammed, at this point? No. 
<laughs> it is it is tough, right? I that mean, was the number one thing. That survey that we did yeah. to kick off the event today, when we put, right. you know, what, what's on your mind? Innovation, diversity, a lot of different things. Talent was the number one thing, right? And I mean, this is a great summit. I'm so glad to be here. You guys do a great job uh, putting it on, and and you know, you have a hundred CEOs that say talent is the number one thing, and. You know, there are studies, like CompTIA has a study that says there are 500,000 open IT jobs right now in America. We're only graduating 50,000 uh, computer-related people per year. Do the basic math. It's not going to work. Right. Where are they going to come from? That's actually an opportunity for us to train our population to participate. How do we do that? Because that's certainly been an area that we've discussed about education here yeah. uh, in the country. I mean, how do we, I know that there are certainly technology companies that reach out to even yeah. colleges, but even high schools to get kids on a track, a trajectory yeah. for the jobs that uh, they're going to need filled. Yeah. This is actually solve a problem. I, this is, I'm so excited that this is solvable. We just have to solve it. You know, Mayor Bloomberg talked about K through 12. We have to invest in K through 12. That's actually one of our largest source of popular public uh, universities, community college, there are a lot of people there right. who could actually contribute, but they're not today. And so at Carbonite, and we have other uh, friends, companies who are doing similar things, we, um, you know, we started a Carbonite Charitable Fund focused on uh, enhancing STEM education for lower-income folks in uh, the uh, cities we operate, Boston, Salt Lake City, mm -hmm. Indianapolis. One of our programs is called Hack Diversity in Boston, where we reach into the community college, um, give internships to uh, folks, and then decide if we're going to hire them. And it's been wildly successful. This is a talent pool that is untapped, and we're able to tap it. That's really fascinating. And diversity, too? Absolutely. You actually automatically out. get diversity when you go to K-12 through public and when you go to you know public universities. It just happens because that's where the diverse population is. That's what I wonder, Mohammed. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like another conversation here is that it is going to be the private sector that's going to be fixing things, that we haven't seen politicians, we've seen gridlock, and while sometimes some financial markets like that, you don't get certain things done that really need to be done. Yeah. Is it going to be up to the private sector? Does private sector have to step up? Private sector has a really critical play, uh, role to play. Um, you know, I attended the State of the Union address. I know. And I, I had dinner with 100 senators. It was amazing. They all want to do something. Democrats and Republicans. Democrats and Republicans. And my table is half and half. And I have to say, they're wonderful people. They actually want to change <laughs> things. But they know it's their downbeat because they actually can't change things. It's sort of gridlock, right? But, but why yeah. aren't they talking to one another? Oh, they're talking to one another. But, you, I mean, you know, there's, there's yeah. a, they're, they're like a whole, I'm not going right. to get into, there's like a lot of complexities <laughs> there. And so they are, they are actually looking for businesses to take the leadership on a variety of things. And, and it's really nice to see businesses step up. You know, when you see people like Mayor Bloomberg step up, Jamie Dimon step up, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, Ursula Burns was here today talking yeah. about stepping up. Businesses are actually stepping up that didn't before. But I don't think that's going to be sufficient. Business will only get it so far. In our country, over the last 200 years, government has always played an important role. And I think what businesses are going to have to do is eventually push government to actually make good decisions for our country. We shall see. We shall. We shall see. Um, but you're upbeat. I am. Nothing keeping you up at night? 
I always like to ask I'm generally an optimistic person. (laughs) (laughs) I sleep well. You do, you do. Listen, it was so good to check back with you. Likewise. Yeah, Thank you. Muhammad Ali, of course, President and CEO of Carbonite, based in Boston, on site at the Bloomberg Breakaway Summit in New York City. All right, everybody, it's just about 221 after the hour. Quick check on the markets for you, and we've got the Dow Jones Industrial Average off 159 points, the S&P a decline of 14 points, and the Nasdaq down about 7 tenths of a percent. That's about a 54-point drop. This is Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg. Slippity, slippity side. Uh, yeah, what happens when you fall? What happens when there's an accident? Uh, you hope you have some kind of insurance around. Um, we're going to kind of talk about that right now. Here with me at the Bloomberg Breakaway Summit in New York, Alan Kohlberg. He's CEO at Assurance. He's a global provider of risk management solutions, providing property and casualty insurance for just about any major purchase you might need to make. And that includes an autonomous vehicle, right? No, that's correct. <laughs> Which I want to talk to you about because I actually, I don't know, it was about a couple years ago, um, starting to talk with the financial community about, oh my God, we, we're going to have to insurance. Who, you know, who's going to be responsible if there's an accident with a self-driving vehicle? You guys are working on that. We are. In fact, we just did a major merger that just closed with the warranty group. We yes. did that to make us the world's largest provider of service contracts around a vehicle. So we don't do the auto insurance. What we do is ensure it keeps running. So if it breaks down, you know, we're the firm that stands behind getting repaired. You don't want to get you. to the other side of it. No, no. <laughs> no, but you are all about, like I said, anything you purchase, right? You're protecting that. Yeah, so we partner with the leading global consumer companies around literally every durable thing a consumer purchases. So right. think about something expensive and durable. And what we're really doing is we work with our partners to help them have better experience with their customers. They keep those consumers longer, the consumers happier. That's really what we try to do. Now, I always feel like that's some, kind of sometimes the thing that we're like, okay, I don't want to do that, like buy that on a product. But tell me about the trends that you're seeing in that industry. More and more people are buying some yeah. kind of management for that. Yeah, what you're seeing with the, we're talking about service contracts, this right. extends yeah. the warranty. People realize the cell phone's actually pretty expensive now because you're paying for it yourself as a consumer. So you're seeing more consumers buy our service. You are seeing We that. are. Yeah. We on, are. And on cars, same thing. On cell phones, cars, you are seeing a pickup in that. Gradually increasing. And we think, for example, with electric vehicles, mm-hmm. uh, because of the uh, cost, if an electric vehicle has a problem, we're, we expect that will continue as we move toward electric. That's really interesting. Um, are you concerned about the cost, though, of, like, that, that there could be lots of problems because they are becoming such an electronic device? They are, but what you think about, we, we protect 37 million devices in the mobile market. We mm-hmm. protect 40 million cars. We have great information to understand the risk, and then we're able to manage it. We repair many of the cell phones ourselves that don't work. So we control actually fixing it or manage the fixing of it as well. How big is this market potentially? When I do think about technology, I keep saying to everybody, it doesn't matter what industry we're dealing with, you know, technology is just kind of taking over all of it. No, I, I don't know how big it's <laughs> going to be. But you think if you fast forward a decade or so in autos, electric will be a major part of the auto market. That creates new opportunities. Autonomous will change the way people own cars. Right. And you'll have more companies owning cars, which is our sweet spot. We partner with companies. That's what I was going to wonder. Like, who's buying the policies at that point, right? When we talk about so much of um, the growth of the sharing economy and we anticipate that more people won't necessarily own cars, they'll share a car. So it'll be the company that provides those cars to everybody. Exactly. You see it already with like major auto manufacturers. They're they're experimenting with, I don't need to sell you a car. I will 
effectively rent you a car. You, you sign up for my subscription service. And then what we do is help manage that for the auto manufacturer until they finally decide to sell it. So you love, do you love like Volvo's doing a subscription service as they try to tackle into millennials um, where, you know, you pay a monthly fee and your insurance is taken care of, you get, the car is taken care of, depending on the policy, you get a new car, I don't know, every six months or a year. This yeah. is great for your business. It's, well, we're ideally, or is it? No, it's very good for our business because we don't do traditional auto insurance. Right. That's, that's a challenge for them. Right. What we and do can is be costly. Very. Yeah. But while Volvo, for example, has that program, we can do services for Volvo, like make sure the cars are repaired and maintained. And then when they go to sell the car eventually, because they'll still sell it eventually. Right. Our service can go with the car. So we can benefit both while they own it and then when it's sold. You know, one of the discussions that came up here um, was the issue of pricing and saying how that people need to get smarter about pricing, right? And that's got to become a bigger part of the conversation. Um, I'm just curious, are, are these policies expensive? What, where are you on that? And, and when you think about it, like, uh, are, do people, is there a, a point where people say, well, wait a minute, this is too much? Like, how do you think about that? So we're trying to, we can't change price every minute because no. we're regulated to a degree. Yeah. We're trying to create kind of a good, better, best model. So there's an entry product that might just provide traditional insurance, and a better might have customer care, and, and the best might have roadside assistance. So different levels. Yeah, so the consumer can choose how much do they need of the various things. That's the best approach we've come up with, kind of a good, better, best model. What's the biggest thing that's changing in your industry right now? A hard question because what isn't changing <laughs> in the industry right no, now? No, but I'm trying to think because you, to some extent, are riding the wave of the industries that are yep. being disrupted, right? And so you're kind of helping them out to some extent by providing these policies should something go wrong with a product. Yeah, so what's really changing the most is where consumers buy things. Yeah. So if you think about digital uh, and the rise of Amazon, for example, that's completely changed. But if you fast forward, it's going to continue to change. Yeah. So, for example, in mobile, Ford is working on the connected car, and they'll probably end up selling you the smartphone that's embedded in the car that you can then take out. So Ford will end up being a major distributor of smartphones. And we just have to follow wherever the consumer goes to get their product. Just keep aware of where it's going. Um, really interesting stuff. Wow. Thank you so much. Alan Kohlberg, Chief Executive Officer of Assurance, based in New York, on site here at the Bloomberg Breakaway CEO Summit in New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 